Welcome back, all of you, to our uh, reentry summit, working together to support San Franciscans after incarceration. I'm Joanne Marr, your moderator for our final panel discussion on getting services and resources to ex-offenders. And this is critical to any prisoner reentry program system. The goal is to prepare ex-offenders to return safely to their communities and to live as law-abiding citizens. But successful reentry is a real challenge, given the fact that uh, most people released from prisons have serious social and medical problems. Most of them are uneducated. Most of them have little in the way of job skills and training. And a lot of them are um, transients. They have no families to return to. It's estimated that uh, over two-thirds of all ex-offenders have had substance abuse problems. One in six has had mental illness problems. This presents real challenges for community service providers. How to connect ex-offenders with the services they need that will turn their lives around. And we have a panel of distinguished community service providers, people whose organizations provide a wide array of services and resources. And here's who's on our panel today. Dan McAlaire is executive director and co-founder with Center on Juvenile and Criminal Justice. Ronald Terry is senior deputy with the San Francisco Sheriff's Department and No Violence Alliance. Billy Booker is an ex-offender who has gone through the No Violence Alliance program. Richard Rendon is deputy director with the San Francisco Pre-Trial Diversion of, uh, and No Violence Alliance. Lisa Murphy is with Walden House and the Free Women Coalition. Eddie Zhang is uh, with the Community Youth Center. Allison West is Executive Director with the California Reentry Program. Uh, Jason Bell is the Director with Project Rebound here at San Francisco State University. And Karen Brown is with the Northern California Service League. And I'd like to start by having Dan McAlair give us an overview of how reentry and rehabilitation programs are administered and funded statewide and here in San Francisco. Thank you. Okay. Is this working? Everybody hear me? I can talk loud. Go ahead. All right. <laughs> First of all, I want to congratulate Jeff Adachi and Sheriff Hennessy and Ross Mercurimi and Kamala Harris and some of the other city officials for their work in trying to improve the level of services for people coming out of prison or coming out of jail. I think San Francisco in many ways stands alone in California and throughout most of the nation in the development of progressive policies. And I think we're, we're fortunate to be living in in such a community. However, is there, I, before I begin, and I'm, I've been asked to talk about funding. Is there anybody here who doesn't believe that reentry services should be expanded? Probably nobody would admit it after today. Um, I'm not going to talk about the delivery of direct services. I think my colleagues on the panel here can do a better job of doing that. But I think to some degree, I don't want to be the bearer of bad news, but uh, I, I think what we have to be aware of is the political reality around funding reentry services in California, particularly if we're talking about funding reentry services through the Department of Corrections. 
uh, Department of, excuse me, the Department of Corrections and Rehabilitation. Um, I, and I am glad that they have shifted uh, at least um, um, trying to shift uh, a philosophical direction. Um, however, uh, the reality may be something different for, for many years. Um, just to give you an idea, and we heard a little bit about it today, in the California Department of Corrections right now, there's, there's 56,000 employees. Anybody know how many of those are, are working in the area of parole? 3,000. 3,000 out of 56,000. There are more administrators. In fact, there's, there's 4,500 people working in the Department of Corrections and administration than there are in parole. We spend about $34,000 a year to incarcerate run one person in the state of California in our overcrowded, decrepit prisons. We spend about a little, little more than $4,000 per year for everybody on parole. So it kind of gives you an idea of where our emphasis is. For the last, I've been involved in this for almost 20 years, and I have been involved in it at the, at the local level, and I've been involved in it at the state level. And frankly, in order to, if we are to expand reentry, if we are going to make reentry an actual reality where it becomes a major emphasis of the criminal justice system, the change is going to have to occur in Sacramento. Local communities cannot be expected to carry the burden of what essentially is a state-created mistake. The correction system in California is, an, is a disaster. Uh, and, and frankly, it's on the verge of collapse. We have 172,000 people stuffed into a prison system designed for 90,000. We parole approximately 120,000 of them a year. 70% return within a very within a short period of time, and when their and when their parole is revoked and they're returned to prison, they spend an average of five months incarcerated again in the same situation under the same circumstances, and then they're paroled again, and the cycle begins again. And that's the way it works. It's a system designed to fail. It's a catch and release. What's been described uh, as a, a fishing term, a catch and release. We release them, then we trail them, we, we, we trail them, we nail them, and then we jail them. Now, um, the, in recent years, and in in, in actually in the last 20 years, there's been a number of studies talking about policy studies, high-level policy studies by a number of statewide organizations, from the Legislative Analyst's Office to the Little Hoover Commission to the Senate Research Bureau, all these not what we call nonpartisan research groups, including a committee, an independent committee set up by Governor Schwarzenegger, headed by Governor Newt Duke Mason, no left left wing liberal. All of them came come to the same conclusion that California's correction system overemphasizes incarceration at the expense of reentry services. And in order to bring any sanity to the system, we have to shift back towards uh, uh, funding reentry services. We need to do it through parole reform and sentencing reform. That's been the mantra of policy, uh, of, of, uh, policy experts in Sacramento for 20 years. Well, if it's, been talk if it's been talked about for 20 years, why hasn't it happened? Why hasn't it happened? It's called interest group politics, folks. 
Uh, it's great that we're having meetings here in San Francisco talking about reentry reform, but the, but the decisions are being made in Sacramento in isolation from, the things, from things that are happening at the local level, where the, whether it's here in San, in San Francisco or Modoc County, it doesn't really matter. Because the interest groups that continue to support and sustain the current system, the, the current broken system, continue to wield power in Sacramento. And the decision-making, is, that is not going to change until some political pressure is brought on, these, on our legislators in Sacramento, and specifically some of these interest groups. And I have to tell you, it's good to hear, sit here. Uh, we, have a very, we have a wonderful sheriff here in San Francisco with a wonderful sheriff's department that has the most progressive programs of any sheriff's department in the country. It's a good thing. But let me tell you something. Uh, one of the biggest obstacles to change in Sacramento is the California Sheriff's Association. You know another big obstacle to change in Sacramento? The California, the California District Attorneys Association. They, they, they will oppose everything, including fresh air, if it's offered to them. The, uh, for a long time, the biggest obstacle, of course, was the prison guards union, because everybody knows they benefited from incarceration. Well, interesting enough, the prison guards union this past year went through some, I, I don't know what it happened, but they went through a change. And they decided that, you know what, the prison crowding is becoming uh, a problem for them, for their members. And so they shifted, and they started calling for changes in sentencing, sentencing reform that would reduce the prison population in California, emphasizing the shift away from just incarceration and movement back to the counties and, and providing, providing reentry services to the county. Great idea. I thought with the Prison Guards Union and their seven, $7 million that they raise each year to spend on, more, that they used to spend on advocating more incarceration, we got this one. And I sat in a meeting. Uh, on sentencing reform, a series of meetings on sentencing reform at the CCPOA headquarters, Cal the, the Prison Guard Union headquarters. And it was this wonderful group of people who used to be at odds with each other, and we all sat down, and it was the last meeting. And I'll, ne I'll still never forget it. The, uh, a lobbyist for the California Sheriff's Association and the California Police Chiefs Association walked in, hadn't been to any of the previous meetings, sat down and said, uh, you guys can talk about sentencing reform all you want, but it's dead on arrival. And I'm sitting there, I'm thinking, I'm sitting, I've got uh, the head of the prison guards union is two seats away from me, and I'm thinking, you know what, i got the 800-pound gorilla next to me, and I think this guy's full of you-know-what, and I think we're actually going to win this one. I was wrong. Uh, what we got was the largest prison expansion bill in state history, AB 900. And let me tell you something, I'm, I'm gonna, and, I'll, and, I'll, and I'll move on. I know there's other people waiting to, to talk. AB 900, no matter what they, how they try to tout that, as reform, folks, it is not reform. Let me tell you the way it works. Let me tell you the way it works. When we, that is, it's calling for $7.6 billion in lease revenue bonds, lease revenue bonds that don't have to go to voters, which we will pay double, which will expand, we'll end up paying $15 million on. $17 million will go to Building an additional, I believe it's 56,000 beds statewide. That is the largest single prison expansion in the state history. Um, and let me tell you what happened. That's only building. That doesn't include operating costs. It costs $80, 80 million dollars a year to operate one prison. 
You know what? We can, everybody's talking about reentry reform. If AB 900 gets implemented, there's going to be no money left over for all these wonderful programs that we are talking about. And I was dismayed to hear, uh, and good people, but the, the folks from the CDC this morning talking about the uh, reentry reform being building new institutions at the local level. That's not reentry reform. That's a problem with the, that's a problem with the CDC. Building institutions and building jails at the local level, unfortunately we call that in corrections the edifice complex. If it's not a building attached to it, it doesn't, you know, it doesn't have any real meaning. Um, there's going to be, there's, there's very little opportunity here. And there's going to be, the reality is down the road, if we build those prisons and we have to fund their operation costs, there is going to be no money left over for any of the things that we're talking about today. And I hate to, I hate to, I hate to be the, the, the bearer of bad news or the doomsday, whatever you call it. Um, but these are, these are realities that we have to face. And if we're going to move forward, we don't just move forward by talking amongst ourselves here in San Francisco. We, gotta, we also have to put pressure on our legislators in Sacramento. And, and also some of the interest groups that have been pushing this. Because I don't believe the lobbyists, the way it works in Sacramento, is the lobbyists who represent these interest groups or these associations, professional associations, don't always represent the, the interests of their members, but they speak for it. And they're the ones that are, they're the, they're the ones that are, are, that attend the meetings in Sacramento. They're there on a daily basis and they're the ones that set policy. It's a very closed group. We've got to open, we, we've got to, uh, we've got to get in the door there. We've got to, we've got to, um, uh, we've got to be part of that decision making. And we, this group, you folks, have to be part of that decision. You have to demand, you have to demand entry into those meetings. So it's not just dominated by a very small group of people. So, um, you know, it's wonderful. We, we have to move forward from here. Reentry is the way corrections policy has to move, but we, ha but we have to tell them. We have to communicate that in Sacramento. So I'll leave it at that, and I'll stop talking. For now. Okay, my next set of questions are for uh, Ronald Terry and Richard Rendon, who uh, are part of the NOVA reentry program, No Violence Alliance, which was started uh, a year ago by the uh, Sheriff's Department, which uh, targets assistance to violent ex-offenders. Um, you know, I was curious about NOVA. There's been this, traditionally, this adversarial relationship uh, between uh, law enforcement and um, expellents. Has it been a challenge to try to attract ex-offenders into the NOVA program so far? Uh, not from my standpoint. Uh, <clears throat> it's, actually been, uh, it's actually been going very well, um, having law enforcement uh, working with ex-offenders uh, <coughs> with community-based organizations and um, I think it's a formula that can be replicated, and that's been working very well. Um, let me give you just an example of what I've seen and experienced um, over the last year. Typically, you're right. There's, there's typically adversarial relationships between programs or clients' perceptions of programs that are run by law enforcement, whether probation or, or district attorney's offices or parole offices. Um, what I've seen in the last year is 
that when a client from what, how we deal with this on the client, with the client individually is when the client's accepted, there's an assessment done and an orientation and the client has explained the relationship of the sheriff's department, that they're overseeing the, the program, but they will have very little contact, if any, with the, with the sheriff's department. And um, the other example is I've been to numerous site visits out in the community with Senior Deputy Terry, and invariably clients run up to Senior Deputy versus run away from Senior Deputy. I don't know if it's, maybe it's unique to San Francisco, the Sheriff's <laughs> Department. Yeah, I think it is, it is uh, unique to the San Francisco that the Sheriff's Department here is almost seen, at least that's, that's what I'm witnessing, is that clients are, are responding to Senior Deputy saying, even up in San Quentin, we went up there and clients are, are saying, Senior Deputy, I said, remember five years ago, San Bruno. Or, uh, and, and I don't know, what I'm experiencing is this feeling of, Clients are almost seeing the Sheriff's Department in San Francisco as the protect, protector or guardian while they are in. Uh, and that, that may be unique to San Francisco. But uh, also, Senior Deputy Terry has actually, uh, on occasions, when caseworkers have uh, exhausted their tools of mediation or de-escalation, uh, sometimes when clients have had problems uh, and the caseworkers feel, this, this might still get violent. Um, senior deputies come in, and he's worked with these guys before, and kind of sat them down and said, you know, do you remember what we're doing here? You know, that this is a violence prevention program, and that, that has worked very well. Um, also, just one last uh, example. Um, you know, we had a client, a NOVA client, that had some, some past, uh, some things in his past had come back to haunt him while he was on NOVA. And uh, a DA warrant had popped up, and uh, he was uh, told to turn himself in. And uh, typically, he wanted to run. And he had talked to Senior Deputy Terry, and Senior Deputy Terry had explained the situation. He didn't run from Senior Deputy Terry. Senior Deputy explained the consequences. Um, the Public Defender's Office, to show you the collaboration, the Public Defender's Office, uh, one of the supervisors, the felony supervisors, uh, took the time to meet with them and explain the consequences as well. And we, the NOVA caseworkers, met with, talked, spoke with his mother. So there was a lot of uh, discussion about this. And then finally the client decides uh, to turn himself in. And it's 6.30 at night, and uh, we're, we went and had a meal first, and he thought he was going in for three years. And uh, so a very young kid, 19, had not been to prison yet. And we're walking across the street, and he's telling us, oh, will you guys come visit and bring me books and this, and I'm going to go to charter school, and I'm going to... And all of a sudden, he sees uh, Sheriff Hennessy uh, at the cafe across the street. And uh, next thing you know, he runs to see uh, the Sheriff Hennessy and, and goes up to him and tells him what's happening. And, and Sheriff Hennessy says... You know, I'm, I'm very proud of you, and I think you're doing the right thing, and this is a very difficult thing for you to do. And uh, they, they embraced and hugged, and I, and I thought, I, uh, another caseworker was with me, and another Nova client was with me, and we walked across the street in awe, sort of. I, I just don't know if that's, uh, that's ever, I've never heard of an opportunity where a, a client has, a young, scared uh, man has taken the opportunity to embrace uh, his jailer, you know, before he goes in. And, and I'll tell you that, that since then, the, the client has gotten out. He's gotten out very quickly. The public defender's office uh, worked on the case. The client has gotten out, and now he's entering another, I mean, one of the transitional programs. So. Okay. I'd like to bring uh, Billy Booker into this discussion. He is an ex-offender, and he's been through the NOVA program. So uh, why don't you tell us your experience, how the NOVA program has helped you reintegrate? Hmm. First of all, um, like someone mentioned before, I never thought my bonding 
past would be able to assist me with, help me. It always seemed to help me back. You know, you, you, you have a criminal history, can't hire you. But someone came up with this genius ideal that uh, your past could help you. And so I'd like to thank Sheriff Hennessy for that opportunity. But um, they helped me with so much as housing, um, a safe environment where I could come down and stay. And uh, in that area, someone mentioned also, I think it was George, that usually when I was released from county jail, I would run up towards 6th Street or the drugs or you know, the red lights, district, something I was familiar to. By being in Nova before I started attending City College and working, I had a safe environment that I could come down and get on the computers. I can attend groups. And they advocated everything for me because I didn't have communication skills where I would deal with. I had issues dealing with um, SSI. Um, I had some outstanding debts at City College. Um, I had some traffic tickets. And they gave me an opportunity to work those tickets off within Nova. And Richard had signed them off, you know, parking tickets. But I worked, you know. And um, but they just they purchased clothes for me, you know, and the group's anger management. Victim impacts got me, let me see a, uh, the other side of the victim. When the group the guests came in to speak, I see how I traumatized people, you know, robbing and putting guns in their face. You know, and they would never be the same. Someone couldn't even go out and provide for their families. So it allowed me to see uh, uh, other side of, of the, the victims that I affected in, the, in my criminal um, lifestyle. So it helps me mentally. I mean, I mean, they gave me tutoring while I was in school, you know, in midterms. And, you know, they did so much for me, fast passes, so many things, man. Mentally, physical, it just—it's all around helping me. Great services. Well, you know, I have one suggestion, and that is—I um, think one thing that Nova could work on is outreach and publicity. I was trying to uh, do an internet search on Nova and I couldn't find up find anything. And if I can't find anything, I imagine it must be difficult for ex-offenders to find out information about Nova. So are you working on trying to get the word out about your program? Well, right now, <coughs> excuse me, right now Nova is a pilot project where we're just accepting so many uh, uh, ex-offenders into the program. Um, the way you get in is either through jail or through one of the community-based organizations that are uh, linked with NOVA, and we're also going into the prison systems. Um, the pilot project was just to reach out to about 80 to 100 individuals initially, and uh, we got some money through uh, Jeff Adachi's, uh Community Safe uh, organization, and so we expanded on it for about 60 more individuals. So the program, really, it, it's it's a pilot program, and it's filled up. So if I go to advertise and have nothing to give out, then that, that just that hurts. You know, it hurts the program more than uh, helps it. So that's why you really don't find out much about it unless you've been incarcerated or unless you're really. Uh, 
link with your community-based organizations that we're uh, linked with. So the NOVA program is currently serving a couple of hundred ex-offenders right now? Currently there's uh, 160 involved, active. And Do you have plans to expand the program? Um, we're working on trying to uh, give more grants and more money to expand the program, but like anything, it's resources, as in financial resources. Okay, thank you. Well, I'd like to have other community service providers on the panel talk about their organizations and the services they provide for ex-offenders. Lisa Murphy is with the Free Women Coalition. That's an organization that provides services to women ex-offenders. And uh, Eddie Zhang is with the Community Youth Center, which provides services to Asian and Pacific Islander uh, ex-offenders. I'd like to have Lisa and Eddie share their personal stories and describe how your experiences got you involved with the ex-offender community. Now we start with Lisa. Okay. Well, um, I paroled from prison in March of this year, and um, I paroled into a residential treatment program because um, while I was in prison, I was trying to be um, proactive and not coming back there because it's a pretty crappy place to be. Um, so I tried to do some research on the things that I could do as an individual to keep myself out of prison. And um, one of those things was to go to a residential treatment program upon parole. And evidently it drops your recidivism rate down to like 25% or something. And I feel like life's kind of a numbers game. And if I can boost my numbers, well, then why not do it? <clears throat> I was lucky in so much as that while I was incarcerated, I was in um, the substance abuse program within the prison. Um, that's definitely something that helped me when I got out, and it helped me keep myself focused um, in what I needed to do when I got out. So while I was at this residential treatment program, um, I was budding one of my um, fellow rehab people to um, – the HIV awareness program, which is the program that gives AIDS tests while people are in 850. And I just happened into um, Isela Gonzalez, who's also in the Free Women Coalition with me. And um, she told me a little bit about what they were doing. And it sounded really cool to me because I think that part of what I need to do as a parolee and just as a person um, maybe to redeem myself a little bit is to make sure that I give back to the community and make sure that I use my privilege and my blessings in this world to make it easier for other women coming out of prison. And I really think that um, the Free Women Coalition is unique in so much as that it's focused on women because I'm sure – I haven't been here. I just came from work. But I'm pretty sure that a lot of the focus has not been on women because women have a lot of very unique problems when they come out of prison because not only do they have all the crap that guys have to deal with, but they also have kids and child care. And, um, you know, like that's a lot. I mean, you know, it doesn't sound like a lot, but, I mean, if you've got three screaming kids at home and you can't um, figure out how to deal with your own life and your own problems and then that's compounded with your children's life and your children's problems, that's a whole bunch to deal with. So... Um, from the first meeting I went to with the Free Women Coalition, I was on board because I feel like this is a really important thing to um, help women when they get out of jail and when they get out of prison because not everybody has the same privilege that I do, and so I definitely needed to share that. 
Okay, Eddie Zhang, why don't you tell us about your organization, the Community Youth Center. Thank you. I work for the Community Youth Center in San Francisco, and I, specifically I work for the component of Community Response Network for Asian Pacific Islanders, and this is a new component with the Community Response Network. So it's something that I love to do because I'm able to serve the youth and the community to reduce violence, to reduce truancy, and to try to educate people about the prison system and how reentry works if you work it. So the reason I like to provide my service and enjoy this type of work is because I was an ex-offender. As a matter of fact, I was incarcerated for 21 years, and I was just released February. So it was fortunate for me that I was able to come out. I'm one of those blessed ones that, who's able to make my own programs, who refuse to allow the system to hold me back, to allow myself to hold me back. So I had to make that transformation within, through education and through the support of my family and most important, do support for my friends out in the community. Because without the community and my family, I wouldn't be sitting here today as someone who is proud of himself for his transformations. So, and during my incarceration in the prison system, I noticed the fact that there were a lot of Asian Pacific Islanders start coming to the prison over the last you know, two decades. So, however, there were, there's always a lack of resources for those people because some of them are mono- uh, speaking you know, people so they couldn't get the resource they, they needed, whether it's dealing with mental health, whether it's just visiting. Because when you have 33 prisons in the state of California, people are being spread out. And these Asian Pacific Islanders, they are being spread out throughout the prison system, and their family cannot reach out to them. And when you have the community, you don't have a Lack of, you have a lack of organizations that who can provide resources for those people because of the cultural differences in the Asian Pacific Islander community, then they really don't get the help that they need to rehabilitate themselves, to transform themselves, that when they get out to the community, then they will not be a threat or become, continue to become victimizers. So therefore, I feel that there's always a need for reentry programs, resources to not just target to the main population, but the population of all who are incarcerated, especially the Asian Pacific Islanders. Because when I was trying to look at this, trying to do some research and look at statistics, there are no statistics on Asian American prisoners, the breakdowns, because we are all categorized as others inside the prison system. So you have the black, whites, Mexicans, and then the others. So you don't have a breakdown, even though, as Mr. McAleer mentioned earlier, we have 100, over 172,000 people incarcerated in the state of California, but how many of those people are APIs? And how many can we break them down to Chinese, Vietnamese, Southeast Asians? We don't have a breakdown on that. So when we don't have a breakdown, we don't have statistics that then we cannot service these people. And these people are going to come out of the community and they will continue to terrorize the neighborhood because they have no other alternatives because the stigmatism as being an ex-prisoner continues to plague them. And when their family cannot and their community cannot embrace them after they've been released or while they were being incarcerated, then they will not make the necessary changes. Because if nobody's talking about the Asian community, they just, they just continue to become 
a secret because nobody wants to talk about the bad things. Everybody wants to talk about the good things in their lives. So as I look out in the audience today, throughout this afternoon session, since I've been here, I don't see a big percentage of the Asian Pacific Islanders out here. You know, I see a lot of people that who, who are representative in their community, but the Asian community, their presence is not a big presence. So it's because that type of ideology, the thing that was, since the, Asian, the Asians, they got, they got it made, you know what I mean? They smart, there's all these stereotypes about the Asians being a modern minorities. That's what stopped people from providing them with resources. And then that's when you come with the interracial violence in the San Francisco. So that's why we continue to try to work with people. That's why the Community Response Network, as a collaboration, we go out there to outreach, we do case management. So we talk to the people who are ex-offenders. We talk to youth that, who may become offenders, you know, trying to steer them in the right path. So these are some of the things that you know, I do working for the Community Response Network of Asian Pacific Islands. Thank you, Eddie Zeng and Lisa Murphy. And now let's pull in our uh, three of our other panelists who are here to talk about their reentry programs. Jason Bell with Project Rebound, which is based here at San Francisco State. Allison West with the California Reentry Program, and Karen Brown with the Northern California Service League. I'd like to have each of you briefly describe your programs and what services you provide ex-offenders, and maybe we could start with uh, Allison West. Is this working? Okay. Um, uh, we're a social services referral agency, basically, at San Quentin State Prison, so we serve only men, unfortunately. Um, I started the program back in 2003 as sort of a hobby in addition to my regular full-time job um, and quickly learned that nowhere in the prison system is there a mechanism to give prisoners resources um, about their communities. Nobody knew where their local social security office was. Nobody knew how to get their driver's license. Nobody knew if they were eligible for Pell Grants to go to college when they got out. Nobody knew what um, programs were offered at their local colleges. Nobody knew who their agent was. It was appalling, to say the least. And um, to the best of my knowledge, I'm, my program is the only one in the state prison system that exists solely to provide those services. I know that there are many, many unsung heroes out there in the prison system, uh, teachers, counselors, vocational instructors, even correctional officers who try to help individuals as they come to them, but there is no concerted effort to try to hook those people up with social services before they get out so that they have a parole plan that they can implement when they get out. Um, I just want to say a couple of other things. Um, San Quentin is the most blessed prison in the state because it has people like you who live nearby and are interested in the plight of prisoners and parolees in their area. But the other 32 prisons are very, very far from this type of situation. And I truly believe that money put into the hands of the Department of Corrections is money misspent. Um, I... Um, I believe if they took all the money that was scheduled for AB 900 and instead of building beds that they put the money into the local communities, including educating those communities that these are our neighbors and our friends and our families and we have to take care of them, that we would see a dramatic drop in incarceration and our crime rate. 
and I will pass it off to our next panelist. Okay, Karen Brown. Okay, excuse me, I hope you can hear me. Uh, my name is Karen Brown and I am I'm, presently I'm the director for the New Day Reporting Center for CDCR, which will be opening up October 1st. Northern California has been, uh, Service League has been working in San Francisco for quite a long time. Uh, we run the um, children's waiting room, uh, the, we have Awakening New Futures, we have the Parolee Employment Program, Cameo House, which is for women who are coming out of prison and incarceration with their children. Uh, we do pre-release at A50 Bryant. We also facilitate the PAC meetings for CDCR. Um, let's see, uh, the new day reporting center is really going to be, I hope, something special as far as getting a continuum of treatment. Uh, one of the things that we find that's really difficult is reaching par uh, target populations while they're still incarcerated, while we still have them focused. So when we bring them out, we can bring them out with helping hand, uh, especially at the state level. So I'm absolutely with you with that. So that's about what we do. <laughs> okay, Jason Bell with Project Rebound. I'm Jason Bell. I'm the, currently the director of Project Rebound here on the San Francisco State University campus. And in our, our program, we pride ourselves in bringing that education, and, and specifically college education, back to reentry. Because for, for decades now, that has been pretty much eliminated. I mean, anything past a, a GED, you, you better not even ask as far as the Department of Correction, Corrections has been concerned. And, and the, the, in essence, things have changed. I mean, there was a time, uh, you know, as far as like even in my parents' era, where you could go, you could go to work and eventually become a homeowner in the Bay Area. But with, that, with cultural and social evolution, things have changed. You got to have some of this positive paperwork generally behind you. And I guess they pretty much think that, or, or just a lot of people have made assumptions that we don't want that, and that's not true. We have a campus full of people here that are, that are disproving that every day. And, and with, with Rebound, what we're doing is we're doing college assessments from the institution. We get tons of mail from every correctional institution in California and some out of state. Well, I hate to say and there's nothing we can do for them, but, I mean, we'll still answer every piece and, and do college assessments through the mail and let them know what we offer here and work on getting that um, getting their paperwork completed and everything before they're even released. And the, the cold part about it is with institutions, there's so much that, and I mean, being in an institution, you're pretty much stagnating. And, and while you're doing that time, the world is still continuing to change. And so without this education, people are being left behind. I mean, you can't compete, really. And so that's what kind of rebound prides itself on doing. And that's pretty much the end of that. Okay, thank you. Okay, in a few minutes, um, we're going to open up the discussion for audience questions, and you can ask your questions through that uh, microphone that's in the center of the room. But uh, I want to ask a question for everybody on the panel. Uh, what, what are your ideas uh, for strategies to keep ex-offenders in your programs 
once uh, they make initial contact with you. Because I imagine the challenge is that a lot of ex-offenders tend to be uh, transient, and getting them to stay in your programs can be a challenge. John, it just dawned on me, and maybe this ties into that question. Well, I don't know if we've discussed what exactly NOVA is. I've heard NOVA mentioned several times. And for some of you, just briefly, let me explain, because uh, it's tied into many of the programs that are on the panel that we're all working together. Yes. It's a, it's a collaboration of community providers that is overseen by the Sheriff's Department as the lead agency, and it is tied in to a elect web-based electronic charting system providing an, an unprecedented level of accountability where, as we speak right now, there's 11 individual caseworkers out in the communities, in the Bayview, Western Edition, and the Mission, that are working with clients, accessing this web base, this, this technology, and providing information of not only you know, who's engaged, which we've had that sort of information before, but now we're able to see who's not engaged, who's not just who's attending groups regularly, but now who do we need to target on? And when, when we talk about bringing to scale reentry casework on a large scale, the only way you can do it is through combining reentry casework and in, information technology, because now we're able to see how can you how can you supervise or oversee 150 cases, two a thousand cases. But now caseworkers can tag or flag cases and say, these are the, these are the high-risk clients right now. Th these clients we're engaged with, these ones have some special needs, and they can focus their day and prioritize their days on those clients. So that, that's sort of new, and, it, and it's invigorating. It's a refreshing program. And, it's, uh, and in a couple months, I think there'll be another, there'll be 17. So I just want to explain that. I don't know. Well, actually, you know, actually, if I could expand on that just a little bit. With, um, the, the program itself, it's an, this one. the program itself, I think it's an integrated model. I mean, it's it's ideal. It's it's where we should be going with reentry services. It's you know, it's it's centralized, but it's decentralized. You're, you're, you have a network of community-based resources, um, clients being tracked. Uh, it's coordinated. I mean, it's it's really it's a model that doesn't exist within the Department of Corrections, and here it is being being modeled at in a local jurisdiction. So it's not, you know, for, for uh, those of us who are looking towards reform, not just occurring here in San Francisco, but beyond, uh, it's a great model. But it would be great to bring it to scale. And it would, and it would be a great model for what Ross Mercurimi was talking about today as a, um, I think it was called, his, his division or department of reentry. It could be a, it's, it's a wonderful model for that. And it's only in its infancy right now. Uh, I have a follow-up question. Um, NOVA is overseeing um, a lot of funding for community service providers. How do you hold them accountable? Uh, I was hearing some discussion in the previous panel about funding attaching to the client. Is, is that the way you can track the funding to make sure that uh, services are going directly to uh, ex-offenders? Well, what we, have, what we have is a service fund that all the uh, NOVA case managers have access to. So they can utilize that money depending on what their client needs are, whether it's housing, whether uh, they need a driver license or take a special driving test, any of those things. So it's a, it's a pot of money that we leave just for uh, individuals. So the individuals can access that money uh, rapidly. Let me give you an example. Allison West referred us a client uh, the last few months. That client got out. There was a little housing provided. The person needed an address. 
um, and was in the union previously. Apparently, they had some union dues. Cannot go back to work without the union dues pay. We pay the union dues, and that client's active is working currently in a very short period of time. If he had not have had that, if we wouldn't have been able to respond immediately. Then, very likely, he would have resorted back to what he was, what he was used to. Joanne, I, I just want to, uh, you know, answer your question a little bit about how to keep the offenders back in, inside the programs. I think, uh, you know, in San Francisco. I mean, there are a lot of programs catered to the ex-offenders, though people who are inside the prison system, and you know, just sometimes just people it's difficult for people to access those programs because their proximity or whatever situation with them mentally, how how they haven't really processed uh, their lifestyle, you know, during the incarceration when they're coming back. So incentives are what will keep these people, these offenders, in these type of programs because if you are able to provide them with incentive to provide them with basic needs, food, shelter, you know, education, jobs, these type of things will keep these people there. But however, uh, that's why it's so great that Mr. Adachi, you know, and the DA and the sheriff and everybody's coming together, you know, been focusing on this issue about reentry of prisoners. Because now Mr. Adachi's officer and Jessica was able to provide this resource guide that can combine everything together to provide this to all the service providers, all the CBOs in the community. I mean, hopefully this reach out to all the 33 state prisons. But that's, and, and doing this panel discussion all day when we're talking about, all I hear is there are a lot of money involved in this thing. It's all about money, right? So that's why they call the prison system a prison industrial complex, because it's all about money and using this money by taking this money off of people's backs, off the human beings' backs. By using them, this, you know, I hate to say it, but it's kind of like modern day, modern day slavery. And that's what it's all about, right? Because the reason, when we talk about reentry, that's one of the solutions to silence violence, to provide a safe environment for all uh, San Franciscans and all Californians to live in. But the ultimate uh, things we need to do is that we need to think about more than reentry. We need to think about abolition of this prison industry complex. So then they no longer being able to use racial profiling on the poor. And that's what, what it's about. It's racial profiling on the poor people. I don't care if you're white, black, Mexican, you're in it. Because if you have over 2.1 million people locked up in the, state, in the United States of America, we're being as the most demo democratic system in the world, there's something wrong with that. So we need to talk about more than just reentry. You know, but in the meantime, let's work with the system and let's see what, what we can do. It takes a grassroots organization to, to, to do this. It takes movements. It takes collaboration with all ethnicities, all cultural backgrounds. If you're a human being, you're going to be affected by this somehow. You're going to be a victim. You're going to know somebody who's a victim. And you, let's talk about the victims. You know? So these are the things that we need to take accountability for. As an ex-offender myself, I need to take accountability for my actions. So my incentive is to be able to help the youth, help the community, so no one going to be able to become a ne the next victim. So I, I hope that you know, we're able to, together, we're able to provide whatever knowledge and resources we have to continue to cater to these people, continue to try to change the system. Does anyone else on this panel have strategies for uh, trying to keep ex-offenders uh, in your reentry programs? Lisa Murphy. Um, well, the Free Women Coalition is kind of unique in so much as it's not 
it's a fledgling group, and um, who's in the group are some academics, and then also there's people like myself who are parolees, and then people who've recently come out of the RISE project in 850 Bryant. So um, as our you know, mission statement and our goals start to um, flesh out and come to fruition, we're realizing that um, no matter how many reentry services are provided in this community, that if you don't have some place to live, you can't access these services. You can't go see Jason. You can't go to the Northern California Service League. You can't do anything if you don't have some place to live. Um, and if you're sleeping on the streets, what are the chances that you want to sleep on the streets clean and sober? And I can tell you that they're none because you're miserable. You're sleeping in the park. You're parked over a grate in the street, and it sucks. And even if you are on GA or something similar, you're in a crappy SRO and you're miserable and you want to do something to alleviate your mind from the situation. So one of our focuses is, um, as we move forward is definitely addressing the housing situation as a whole. I mean, San Francisco in general right now, I mean, all across the board, not just people coming out of prison, but everybody has housing issues right now, unless you're really, really wealthy. And so we're trying to come up with something kind of unique and um, maybe trying to think outside the box a little bit about how, coming up with some solutions because it's obvious that housing is a major problem. Thank you. About the day reporting center, this center is going to be open seven days a week. That's, that to me, being an ex-offender, that to me is really important as a safe place for someone to come. And they'll also have, have access to workshops and everything right there on site besides meals and tokens. The other piece of that is part of our uh, clients. Some of our clients will have access to sober living. And every CBO in this county can tell you that's like gold. My issue is what happens after you utilize your six months of, you know, sober living? If you get hooked up with Charles or Jason to go to school, school is going to last a little bit longer than six months. And I'm not talking about the violent offenders. I'm talking about the simple drug addicts who, who sold dope on the street just to get up. They can't get into public housing a lot of times because of their drug convictions. You know, those are things, long-term things, we need to be looking at. If we're talking about rehabilitation, if we're talking about bringing these people back into the fold, then we need to look at their offenses. And uh, Clean Slate does a good job, but we need to look at it sooner. You know, um, I'm trying to hire a man who had been there, done that, bought the T-shirt in order to engage our clientele. But I'm being told by CDCR they have to have three years off paper, <laughs> okay? I mean, off paper, just to, just to be hired. And it's not even a CDC facility. You know, so those are some of the things we need to look at as a community that's, that we need to bring to the table. It's more than six months sober living if you really want to affect change in someone. Okay, at this point, I'd like to open up the discussion to audience questions. Um, please try to keep your comments or questions brief so everybody has a chance to speak. 
we don't have any questions. She does, but she's got to get up. Okay, please come up to the microphone. <laughs> I've heard several of you that talk about, my, my name is Tony Dunbar, and I'm the director of the Western Edition Family Resource Center on Fillmore. And one of the things that we do is uh, job, we're putting together job placement, job readiness, and I'm aware of the call-ins, I'm aware of all the stuff that's going on in town. So we have a lot of people that come to the office, and everybody that walks in the door needs a job. But the majority of the employers we work with will not hire anybody with a felony. Right. So we've got people looking for work, and we've got employers, but we can't make matches. So is this a policy issue? Do I need to go down and make some special friends? Do you have any suggestions or recommendations on how I can marry people who have felonies but are trying to do better? with people who have the resources but are afraid of folks who have felonies. I need some help to get the people matched. All of the above. <laughs> I, think uh, I think that's the lady here I, I saw earlier. She's with the mentorship program. They mentor people who just came out of the system and with the professional, with the attorneys and different professionals. And also another person you can contact is uh, DA Kamala Harris because in doing her uh, reentry council, and she's working with the people who are CEOs and who, are in, who have corporations. They are, okay. they are hooking up with them to provide those sort of, uh, okay. jobs to the ex-offenders. I will do that so, right away. So Thank you. please contact her. Yes, sir. I would also challenge San Francisco City Council, since they have put this uh, living wage thing into San Francisco, which is absolutely wonderful because you can't live anywhere on minimum wage, what they pay like in Alameda County, challenge them to also have our employers that are located here in the city of San Francisco to hire some of our ex-felons. The San Francisco City Council? Yeah, I mean, the Board of Supervisors? Yes, Board okay. of Supervisors, okay. City Council, Got it. Mayor. I know who to call. <laughs> I know who to call. Thank Dog you. Dog catcher, whoever. Yes, sir. <laughs> and, and also, you know, that there really needs to be a, a re-education process that, that takes place because the reason a lot of those employees are so resistant is because, you know, they continually blast by the negative. And it's easy to say no to if I mean, if you listen to the news, you're going to hear the negative all day. Mm. First thing they're going to tell you is, is a parolee did something real bad yeah. every day of the week. But they, you know what they're not going to do is tell you about all the positives. I mean, what is it? It's like 100,000. People paroling every every what is it every year? Hundred thousand people, and that one or two that's doing something negative, you'll know about. Yeah, I had a I had a long talk with a with a recruiter today, a couple hours, and so we at least got to the place where okay, certain felonies, okay, certain ones. If it has something specific to do with what we're doing here, and this person might be a risk of, but maybe we can look differently at the rest of them. You know, but so yes, thank you very much for the the one on one education process. Um, so I'm like taking names and numbers. I, I want to see the people get jobs. I also want to see them be able to get the job and to be able to keep the job once they get it. So um, Board of Supervisors, re-education, a lot of education for employers that I do encounter, and uh, DA Harris's office. 
reentry program, yes. I would also mention that, you know, as a parolee with a job, there's definitely some benefits to being a parolee. I mean, it's hard to get a job as a felon, and I have lots and lots of years of experience, of viable job experience. But there are some programs out there that will pay employers to hire uh, ex-offenders, that there's so can tax credits. Can I see you? When this is over? Well, and I know that I got a lot of my information from the Northern California Service League. They were really helpful in helping me find a job. So. I got it. Thank you. I'm going to take my seat so that someone else, but I would like to hear the rest of those answers. Mary Jane Smith, Executive Director of Family Works, working with Center Force in the Parenting and Family Reunification Program at San Quentin. Real quick question. Who does, including you folks who are with the NOVA Project, have a tracking database that is available to the rest of us? Even if it's in its pilot form, it's better than reinventing the wheel. Um, we can talk afterwards. Yeah. Okay, great. Thank you. Um, my name is Margot Perrin, and I run an organization called Write and Rise, and I teach writing to uh, people incarcerated at San Francisco County Jail and also San Quentin. And um, I wanted to, the NOVA Project, some of my former students are now in the NOVA Project, and I wondered what, I've, a couple of things. One is how long is there a commitment to keep the NOVA Project going? Because having worked in the jail system for six years, there have been some tremendous programs there, tremendous facilitators, and all of a sudden there's no money, and people are fired overnight. And I myself am in that situation where I have to raise all my own funding. And the work that we're doing is very valuable, and it supports people to actually build themselves up and, and find ways that they can heal themselves, as Luis Rodriguez was saying, so that when they do come out to the community, they can take more advantage of the services. So how long of, the commitment, of a commitment is there to NOVA? Well, right now, and I know we got uh, refunded for another year, and as long as the, the right numbers, as long as the numbers are looking good, I think it will something that can be adopted into our regular budget and then also expand as grants uh, continue to come up. Okay. So. Okay, that sounds good. The other thing, Eddie, when you were saying the things that people need, jobs, housing, et cetera, et cetera, one thing that was only mentioned once this morning was respect because many of my students keep returning and many of them have tried going to different service agencies and they get so upset because when they go, they're treated horribly. And I know I've heard this from many different people who work in the system. So well, respect is definitely something that you have to earn. You know? I mean, that's that's with anybody. Mm -hmm. You know, but at the same time, when you talk about respect, we need to talk about. I mean, I'm going to go into the deep end with this. We need to talk about the decolonization of these people's minds. That's what we're talking about. You know, what I mean, that's including you and I. You know, so that's what we're talking about. So when we're able to do that, then we can talk about respect. You know, but in the meantime. Respect, we have to earn every, I don't care you 70 years old, if you don't respect yourself, I got no respect for you. Well, the thing is, is I mean, I, I, I really, really admire you. I really look up to you a lot. I think what you say is incredible. What you've been through is incredible, and what you're doing with that is incredible. But I have to say, with the people I work with, and also my own experience, sometimes we're not at that level. And we need a lot of support to get to that level. And so, I, so I, when it's I, a process. It's, it is a, a, process. It's a process. Exactly. So we have, that's why we need to have support from the community, for the families, with everybody who's involved in this process, because we cannot do this alone. Right. These people, 
I don't, I never put myself on a pedestal on what I do because I'm the last one who judge other people because of my experience. But the thing is, everybody has his own time of transformation. Everybody has their own time to wake up and to come up. Okay, but we have to give that a little helping hand okay, right. to, to get that going. You know, so that's, if that's what it takes. Yes, thank you. Hello, my name is Manuel, and I work next to Jason in Project Rebound. Um, first and foremost, I want to commend uh, uh, Mr. McLemore and Eddie for bringing up some salient issues that most people are afraid of to bring, in, to, um, to bring out in public because, you know, of fear of the repercussions of what people are going to think, you know, like you mentioned conspiracy theories and all the different things, but I want to commend especially Eddie for, for being so straightforward. So, and the, the question is directed to Nova. Um, being that I work with the Latino community, I noticed that most of the representatives for NOVA were African-Americans. The question is, who do, the, who do NOVA primarily uh, target? Is it African-American? And what are the numbers as far as uh, the services provided by NOVA? NOVA is available to all races. Um, it's just right now in the large number, just happen to be African-American. Uh, we have a large population coming out of the Bayview-Hunters Point in the Western Edition. Um, so we haven't had as many Hispanic and Caucasians in the program because the criminal justice system pretty much dictates to us who our large population is going to be. And we take uh, women, females, um, Hispanics, it doesn't matter. Let me just also add that within the next couple of months, two uh, casework teams will be added into the mission specifically from one of the to the community-based organizations located in the mission that will be outreaching folks on the street in, in the mission district more actively. Good afternoon. My name is George Jones. Um, and uh, I want to know, could I get a little assistance in terms of uh, getting my record cleared? Now, I understand that under Penal Code Section 1203.4, there's something called a Certificate of Rehabilitation which, from what I understand, is part of the, or the foundation for the Clean Slate Program. I've been out here in minimum custody for 35 years, and I have as yet to get my record cleared. Um, I've, I've uh, got my uh, uh, certificate in um, labor studies. I've um, completed my studies in computer science. And I'm also a California certified residential manager. Now, I helped build the first pyramid uh, downtown, and I, I feel like at $30 an hour I should be working now. But the reality is uh, racism and sexism says that's not true. If you can go to any construction site here and you find that the blackest thing on the construction site is the tires on the truck, what's wrong with this picture? Okay. I'd like to know, can I get some help doing this? Because I've applied to the uh, fire department three times, the, the uh, oral, written, physical test passes, and same thing with the deputy sheriff's department. But I'm still not, <clears throat> excuse me, I'm still not employed. And what's happened most recently, and uh, Mr. Bell would testify to this, the state police from, from this campus came to my house when I applied for the paralegal program. Uh, and I knew I was in some trouble when I first walked into the downtown campus and asked me, say, what are you doing here? I said, well, I'm on my way to school. They treated me like I was Bin Laden, and they had to tell them, I'm not Bin Laden. So I'd like to know why it is that the police would come to my house and ask me, what am I doing trying to attend class? I haven't had any, any uh, drug offense, any violence, or anything else. But, you know, don't nobody want to address this. And I think this needs to be addressed because this is something that's happening today in society. It's happening right now here on this campus. Can I get some response to that, please? 
Does anybody on this panel have any information about expunging felony convictions? The best person to contact is Ms. Jeffordachi's office. They have a clean slate program, and I think you should take advantage of that program. Also, if you're off paper, three years, come see me. Go ahead. Come see me. Okay, we have time for one more question. Hello. I would like to just comment that I hear and sense the resilience of spirit in the panels and the speakers, and I believe in the people that are gathered here today. That force of spirit can go in a number of directions. It can be what you might call positive or negative. The concept that we have a journey in our lives and where that journey takes us, the beauty of seeing the blessing in disguise is another example of the resilience of spirit. But I think the word forgiveness is a powerful word and a powerful concept, because if we can forgive ourselves and forgive others, this gentleman's problem, if he gets judged when he goes to apply for a job or any judgment that we place on other humans, and Eddie, my heart and soul are with you, but I don't believe we have to earn forgiveness. I mean, I think that is a birthright. And on the respect level, that's another issue. But to forgive someone is to give them a chance. And to forgive yourself is also giving yourself a chance. So in all that we do in all these programs, I think it's important that we see some common bond in each other. And that's our human spirit. It's, it's invincible. There is infinite potential in what we can do as human beings. And irregardless of your spiritual or religious beliefs, you are here, and I believe we're all here for a reason. That journey that Luis Rodriguez speaks of, finding your way home, if you are homeless and you find that certain spark in your spirit, I believe you find home, you know, within ourselves. And we can see that in each other's eyes and in the smiles on our faces. So let's try to be just more loving to each other on a day-to-day -day basis and forgive people when they make, you know, make mistakes because we've all done that. Thank you all very much. Thank you. One more question. Right? So I have a question for y'all. This, this will be our last, very last question. Thank you. Thank you. But everybody's upset. Let me open the quote. If there is light in the soul, there will be beauty in the person. If there is beauty in the person, there will be tranquility in the house. If there's tranquility in the house, there'll be peace in the nation. There's peace in the nation, there'll be peace on earth. It all begins with one person. Here's my question. You've all, I've read your literature, it sounds very profound, but the one question is this. Where is the faith-based community involved in here? 
You see, you can have somebody incarcerated, you can provide all these services, but until you touch their heart, until you change it from the inside, they're not going to change from the outside. So I know you've got to go. I'm leaving you with that thought. I happen to minister in Alameda County, in Santa Rita, North County Jail and Juvenile Hall. And maybe you need to talk to somebody in Alameda County because I don't see any faith-based churches or, or, or mosques or anything involved in this. And you're trying to do it all from a social level. You know, I, I've been incarcerated a few times. But the end of the story is that until you involve the faith-based churches, maybe you don't want to mention that, the people that are locked up are not going to change from the inside or from the outside until they change from the inside. And you've neglected to include any churches or anything in your group. And maybe that's why it's not working. But I know you're trying your best. So I wish you well. But until you include that in your parameters, you're going to still be missing a link. God bless you all. Thank you. Uh, excuse me. Actually, the NOVA program actually works with the Tabernacle and the Baby Hunters Point. So we do have a faith-based community working with the NOVA program. I think that's a great suggestion, and uh, I'm sure members of the San Francisco Safe Communities Reentry Council, which is put on the summit, is listening, and uh, perhaps they will take your suggestion into account to have representatives from faith-based communities to be part of this panel. I'd like to thank all our panelists who were part of our uh, afternoon session. Thanks to Lisa Murphy with Free Women Coalition, Dan McAllaire with the Center on Juvenile and Criminal Justice, Allison West with the California Reentry Program, Jason Bell with Project Rebound, Karen Brown with the Northern California Service League, Ronald Terry, Richard Randon, and Billy Booker with NOVA, and Eddie Zhang from the Community Youth Center. Please give a round of applause to our panelists. And thank you all for coming out today. And here with some closing remarks, uh, San Francisco uh, Public Defender, Jeff Adachi. Thank you. Well, first of all, um, let me thank uh, Joanna Marr, who's done a wonderful job as our uh, moderator uh, today. Don't, don't forget, before you leave, we are going to be raffling off a couple of uh, uh, iPods, so stick around. That's a good incentive. <coughs> I have just a few comments uh, to sum up. Uh, the Safe Communities Reentry Council would like to thank our fiscal sponsors for this event. As you know, this was a free event, so we had to raise the money. Um, so we'd like to thank the California Endowment uh, for their support. Thank you. The San Francisco State Institute for Civic and Community Engagement. And the law firm of Oric, Harrington, and Sutcliffe, uh, who provided financial support. Uh, we, we do have more information uh, about the sponsors in your folders. We also would like to thank uh, the members of the Safe Community Reentry Council. And just so it's clear to folks, uh, there are over 300 participants uh, in the Safe Communities Reentry Council, and over 40. Uh, organizations, including faith-based communities. And um, well, we're always looking for more uh, members. So if you're interested in attending the meeting, uh, please uh, uh, contact Jessica Flintoff. Her contact information is, is in the green folder. 
Um, I would like to ask uh, all the members of the Safe Community Ranchery Council to please stand and, and just be acknowledged uh, for your good work uh, throughout the year. Thank you. And I'd like to, um, to give some special recognition to the person who organized this entire event uh, with a lot of help, uh, Jessica Flintoff, the program coordinator of the Safe Communities Ranchery Council. Thank you, Jessica. Of course, I'd like to thank all the members of, of my office and from the reentry unit who are here to help uh, support this effort, as well as the staff of San Francisco State University um, for their help. Also, thanks to the inmates of the San uh, Quentin State Penitentiary, uh, Valley State Prison for Women, and the San Francisco County Jails who contributed their insights uh, through their letters. And the letters that we had posted there, I hope you had a chance to see those. Thank you, of course, to Luis Rodriguez for uh, delivering the keynote address, all of our panelists. Thank you to uh, Dr. Rochelle Rogers-Ard for playing the grand piano for us today. Thank you to Michael Freeman and the San Francisco Government TV for recording and broadcasting this program. This will be uh, broadcast uh, over the next six months uh, on the San Francisco Government uh, channel, and that's part of our effort to reach out to the community at large. Thank you to uh, Guerras for providing the lunches uh, for our event. I also uh, wanted to, to mention uh, that, again, we do have the uh, resource guide. This resource guide is also going to be available online at sfpublicdefender.org and uh, sfdistrictattorney.org as well as in a hard copy. We will be distributing these around uh, prisons. I just wanted to conclude with uh, three thoughts, and I, I would like to, to leave you with this. You go to a lot of conferences sometimes or summits, and you're left with a good feeling and, and not much more. The difference between the, uh, this summit is that we are a working group, which means that we meet once a month. We have subcommittee meetings on a regular basis, and we implement um, our agenda. And the agenda that came out of today's um, summit, I think clearly, is that we have to push the envelope, that there has to be more resources. If you're talking about 1,500 people, for example, who are on parole and need services in San Francisco, you can only serve 100. You're always going to be, um, you know, fighting the, the, the battle but losing the war. And so I think it's incumbent um, on us, and that's one of the reasons we had all the policy uh, uh, people here today, is that we've got to advocate uh, for more resources. You know, if we could do this, a program like NOVA with $1.5 million, what could we do with $25 million? What could we do with $50 million? And I think we have to think big. I mean, the, the uh, governor is spending $7 billion on corrections, $7 billion. That's, you know, more than the whole budget of San Francisco government here. And to say that we don't have the resources to invest, uh, you know, is just not true. It's a question of how those uh, resources are, are being allocated. And I think, as has been said here, the prison industry is an industry. Uh, there are people making money off of it. And to think that, you know, rehabilitation always comes as an afterthought, and the services rarely um, flow down to the parolees themselves or their uh, prisoners themselves is a reality. It's been a reality for a long time, and I think we'd be crazy not to acknowledge that. I, I think that the second thing that we need to do is push forward with a public education campaign. And that means that we have to make this an issue that, again, is not just an afterthought, just not something that, you know, people just think about in passing. 
but is constantly, constantly on the agenda of not only lawmakers and politicians and elected officials, but also on the average person. And so one of the things the council is planning is to push forward with a public education campaign to reach out to employers, to reach out to folks who have the resources to provide the support. And we know that when we talk about violence, when we talk about gang uh, uh, crimes, that a big solution uh, to that uh, problem is bringing formerly incarcerated individuals who have the skills and have the knowledge and have the experience uh, to bring back particularly uh, to our youth. Uh, finally, um, we're going to be reaching out. We're going to be reaching out to formerly incarcerated individuals. And, you know, it's one thing to produce a resource guide and hand it to somebody. It's, some, it's something else to be able to sit down with somebody and say, hey, here's a resource guide, and here I am to help provide support. I know in my office uh, we've developed a reentry unit to do exactly that. So we have people in the public defender's office who can consistently reach out to our clients um, who are uh, getting ready to, to rejoin the community and even before. And that's a challenge to each of us. I mean, if each of us made the commitment today to reach out to one or two people in the next six months, we would reach out to five, 600 people. And that's really the challenge to us all, is that it's got to be more than just rhetoric. It's got to be more than just good feeling or good intentions. It has to come down to action. And that action has to come from each of us. And so whether we're talking to our friends about this issue, whether we're going to write a story, whether we see something in the newspaper and we write an op-ed or we write a letter to the editor, we need to take action. And that's really what um, we're asking people to do uh, in, this, in this summit. Um, so with that, I thank uh, all of you on behalf of everyone um, who uh, organized the summit um, for making this possible. Uh, we uh, look forward to working with you throughout the year. Uh, all of your um, contributions uh, in terms of the work that you do, the programs that you create have made a difference and continue to make a difference uh, each and every day. And for those of you who are watching on television who might have just been released from prison and jail and are wondering whether there are people who care, we care. Okay. Thank you, and we'll see you next year.